Well, good morning, everyone here in the Worship Center. Those of you that are Nickel Hall, good morning to you. And if you're listening or watching online, we are really privileged. Um, so grateful for you to join us. My name is Tim. I'm going to continue our series this morning in the best life. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 1. So if you want to go there, you can join me there. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses, which is uh, what our series is based on this morning. It begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This last weekend, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to be reunited with some friends of ours from Australia. They are a family who have raised three boys. Uh, we raised three girls. And so the missus in particular has found it to be an opportunity to have three adoptive girls. Now, her love language is gifts, and so if you understand that uh, phraseology, uh, she experiences, she, she knows love by giving and receiving gifts. And, and if you're on the receiving end, this is a really good thing. And so um, last Sunday night, as we're sitting around in a living room, uh, she brings out this big suitcase that is packed full of gifts for my girls. And for the next while, uh, she one by one begins to unpack them and, uh, you know, share her joy with them. And so there's, uh, you know, there are teapots for each one, beautiful teapots and meticulously wrapped so they wouldn't be broken en route. There are shirts that she gives to them. Then there are dresses that she gives to them. And then, home, oh, there's baby clothes that she gives to them. And, and I think I made it pretty clear they weren't up for adoption, but I was pretty good with this, that all these gifts were flowing. And, and this went on for quite a while. And as it's going on, it, it became really obvious that like she's really loving this. Now, there's always been a, a deeper undercurrent that um, such good friends and the realization that, you know, our girls uh, have been missing their real mom. And in some ways, she is stepping into that place and providing some of that love, maybe that 
they've gone missing, but you can just see the joy and the contagious smiles on her face as we're all sitting there taking it in. I got nothing, but I was really happy for them. And as I'm sitting there reflecting, and of course, you know, when we do a series here at Central Heights, like I'm soaking in the scripture that the series is based on, and I couldn't help but think how this is a picture of Ephesians chapter 1 and the verses that we've read uh, from verses 3 to 14, how it's showing us, Paul is trying to communicate to us, like how, what kind of God we have and the gifts that he gives us and that his disposition towards us is to bless, that he is lavish, that he's gracious. And it's so overwhelming that if, weren't, if it weren't written down for us by the Apostle Paul, we would not believe that it's true. Loving, gracious, lavish, overflowing towards us. This is the kind of God, who is our Father, when you place your faith in him through the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to focus on verses 7 and 8, and I think we see this lavishness, this graciousness of God most clearly as we see how God has addressed the darkest and most difficult part of us. As we look at our fallenness and our failures, which the scripture refers to as sins or trespasses, our rejection of God's ways to embrace our own, our rebellion against him, our disobedience and, and the messes that it causes and, and the separation not only from God but the destruction that it causes in our relationships with one another. And this morning we're gonna see how God has dealt with that in a most amazing way. Now a number of you know that I was um, on a break over the last couple of weeks, so I was um, gone and uh, during this break, um, it just really seemed like a sort of a God connection, but I found myself uh, relating to a person. Uh, we got together on two or three occasions and entered into some pretty deep conversations. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ, and we had a discussion one night over dinner, and then we decided to get again, get to get together again over coffee, and our conversation went deeper, and we talked about Christianity. I uh, shared with him the gospel story right from the beginning of creation, and as we talked further, it became really obvious to me in, in, in some of the things that he said that his, his understanding, his picture of God was all about judgment. And that his view of God was that it was God's disposition not to be gracious and laving, lavish and blessing, but it was God's dis, disposition to be condemning. And so we talked about this and you know, asked the question, well, does God judge? And I would say the better question is not does God judge, but in the end, will God make things right? Will there be justice? Because you see, we all want and hunger and yearn for justice. We want things to be made right in our world. Would there be justice if a, if a person like Hitler who done, has done so many atrocities, would, the, only, the only justice to him is that he committed suicide is, is it all right if, if somebody, you know, there's a rapist or a murderer or, or a child abuser and they get off on some kind of technicality? Is, is that feel like justice to us? Don't, don't we want things to be made right in those situations? Miroslav Volf, um, who uh, lived in Croatia during the Yugoslavian War, when he writes about God and, and judgment, he says it takes the quiet 
of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that nonviolence and, and God's refusal to judge. He says, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Last summer, just being with people in Iraq and listening to some of the stories uh, how people have suffered and been persecuted uh, by ISIS, it just seems so obvious to you that if, if there's no justice in this, in this world, in this life, then it's, that's pretty cruel. See, we want justice. There needs to be justice. It's just that in our desire for justice, in, in a relationship, when we think about God, if we often think about and make comparisons of the most evil people that we can think of, that they deserve justice. But, but when you bring it into the context of a holy, perfect God, there is no one, there is none of us that can stand before him without guilt and without blame and in some way deserving of justice. This is the way it is. And throughout scripture, we see that God is consistent, that he will judge Sin. He'll bring everything into account. He will make things right. The Hitlers of this world will be brought into perfect justice. It's just that none of us can stand before him as blameless. We have been unable to live lives that are blameless before him, and we deserve some form of justice and to be separated from his sight. In Romans chapter 3, it talks about how the law makes this obvious. So in the Old Testament, you know, in order for God's people to have a relationship with him, he gave them the law. And the law really was a form of grace in the Old Testament. It made a way for them to be able to relate to God. But the law also made very clear to them their inability to live up to the law that they were incapable of living in a way that would be right before God. It helped them instead to see their failures more clearly. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. Now he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, if if we would think and and come before God and, and, and say, You know, I've done really well. I've lived a good life. We would come before God and all our rationales, all our reasons for why we should be able to stand before God in a right way, we will find ourselves in silence. Every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world, from those who are the worst to those who are living good lives from our standpoint, the whole world may be held accountable to God. And what the law does is it brings us to a place where we recognize sin. This is the purpose of it. And we will have no excuse. Now, I don't know if you've ever been pulled over by a police officer because you've been breaking the law, even slightly, right? Just a few miles over the speed limit and you get pulled over by the police officer. Um, Have you noticed what happens as he's, you know, the lights are flashing behind you and you're pulling over? What happens? What's going on in your mind? What are you formulating? You're formulating an excuse, right? Isn't that what's going on? I know I do that. Okay, what's my reason? What's my excuse? Oh, I didn't know the speed limit. Oh, um, yeah, I have to go to the bathroom. Um, 
The guy, the guy behind me was tailgating me so much, I had to speed up to get away from him. And, you know, we just, we just come up with these excuses. And Paul says in Romans, we're going to be before God and we'll have, we'll have nothing to say. There's, there's going to be no excuses. Every mouth will be stopped. This is our position if God doesn't do something. Our lives would be so hopeless, they'd be so dark if God hadn't done something. But what we read in Ephesians 1 here is that God, out of the riches of his grace, has lavishly done something that changes the whole situation. What we could never do, Jesus has done. Ephesians 1 verse 7 in him, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins. The word redemption comes from in the Old Testament when there was a slave and somebody wanted to set that slave free. It, would, it was called a redemption and with that, there would be an exchange. There would be a price that would be paid. These are the overtones that, that, are, that are flowing into this New Testament expression. There was an exchange or, or payment. Now think about even the language today that we use when somebody offends you, when somebody's hurt you, when they've wronged you, and some of the things sometimes that come out of our mouths, like, you're going to pay for this. That's going to cost you. I'll get even. Those are the kind of things we say. God's word says to us, in him we have redemption through his blood. The payment, the, the means of exchange, we are made to clearly know here. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to Christianity, uh, maybe you came with a guest this morning, and um, <clears throat> even today, I don't know if you noticed, one of the songs we sang talked about blood. And, you know, so, like Christians sing some songs at first blush seem really weird, like, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's an, that's an oldie. Um, <clears throat> it's your blood that cleanses me. Do you know that one? Some of you people that have been in Christianity for a long time, you, you know it, and you probably never thought twice about, wow, like, doesn't that seem sort of at first blush sort of like strange if you were just walking in off the street? Blood. Why are people talking about blood and even singing like praises around blood? What is that all about? Well, there's a whole backstory to blood that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 1. Blood in Scripture represents life. And in particular, when blood is shed, it's the giving of life for something. So somebody gave his life, his blood, to make something happen. Freedom was purchased through blood. Now think about this, because I think, I think we can get this in a modern-day context. You know, every November um, rolls around. We have a Remembrance Day. And what we do is we remember those soldiers that fought for our freedom. They shed their blood so that in exchange for their blood, we could be free. Paul is saying in a much greater way, Jesus Christ has shed his blood to purchase a freedom. 
Now, I was with a former Muslim this week, and we were having lunch together, and, and he just, uh, as we were talking, he just, you know, we weren't even talking about the subject, but he said, you know, the one thing that was keeping me from Christianity was what we're talking about right now, the, the idea that God would allow his son to suffer or that he had to somehow shed his blood so that people could be all, all right with him. But he believes it now. He believes it because at the very heart of the Christian faith is that for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And, and when that phrase, that giving us his son, is he's giving us his son, in context, if you read it in John chapter three, he's giving us his son to be our savior through sacrifice. In him we have redemption through his blood. This morning I want to say that um, we're going to unpack a statement that gets at what Paul is writing here. Jesus, his substitution, Jesus' necessary, final, and transforming substitution is what sets us free. So at the beginning, at the heart of what Paul's talking about here with blood, is that there is a substitution that has taken place. What we could never do, Jesus has done for us. And so we see the backstory of that in the Old Testament, where there was God allowed for animals and the shed blood of an animal to, in a sense, stand in the place for humanity so that their sins could be forgiven. You know, the most remembered story in the Old Testament is the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And in that, that story, there were 10 miracles that God did and so that Pharaoh would finally let the people of Israel experience freedom. And the last thing, the last judgment that happened was that God was going to come through the land and in, in the darkness, the firstborn of, you know, of every family of every animal was going to be slayed, but those who believed in God, those who would put their trust in, in him, if they would believe God's messenger, Moses, and what he said, they would take an unblemished lamb, they would kill it, and they would take its blood, and they would wipe the blood on the, on the, on the door frame. And that night, when judgment came, God would pass over their home and there would be no death in their home. And year after year after year and to this day, the people of Israel remember that occasion celebrated as the Passover to remember how through the blood of the lamb, God passed over them. Soon after that, God met with Israel in the Mount Sinai and he gives them this law, this, this way of relating to him. And at the core of that, so much central to that, is the sacrifice of animals, blood to be shed. The people would be constantly looking at blood, seeing blood as the priests sacrifice animals. And this, had, this went on year by year by year. And there's a, a day of atonement where they sacrifice a lamb in particular for the sins of the whole nation. But it had to be done every year. It's ongoing. Every day they did stuff. All, every year it's going on and on and on. All of this was pointing to something, pointing to someone. His name is Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood. Substitution. Jesus would die 
in our place. This was not only a substitution, it was a necessary substitution. We are told in Scripture that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world, referring to Jesus. And we know the story of Jesus, and he, he comes to earth, and he lives a perfect life, but he, he often talks about his, imp, his impending death, and his disciples don't want to believe that that's going to happen, but he talks about, I'm going to die, and I'm going to, I'm going to rise from the dead, but they don't want to believe it. No, this, this can't be the way of salvation. This, this can't be God's way of rescuing his people. But on that, on that final night before his crucifixion, we find him in, in Matthew chapter 26. He's there in the garden in, in the Mount of Olives and he's, he's in agony. He says, my soul is in agony. And some of his disciples are there with him and as he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, if it's possible, will you please let this cup pass? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it's possible, God, can we, can we do it some other way? But there was no other way. The death, the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus to be shed had to happen. It was necessary. Jesus was born to do this. Oswald Chambers, in his um, you know, famous devotional, his utmost for his highest, he says, beware of the pleasant view of the fatherhood of God that God is so kind and loving that of course he will forgive us. That thought based solely on emotion cannot be found anywhere in the New Testament. Forgiveness is the divine miracle of grace. The cost to God was the cross of Christ. To forgive sin while remaining a holy God, this price had to be paid. Only the God who became flesh who lived a perfect, sinless life. Only that God in the person of Jesus Christ who goes to the cross in our place and sacrifices himself and sheds his blood could be the one who could fix the problem of humanity's separation from God and their destruction among one another. This last October I was in Israel and there were so many things there that um, as you go to different places and you read your Bible and you think about Jesus being there in that place, I have to say one of the most moving places for me was to be at the Mount of Olives in what they figure the area of the Garden of Gethsemane was and to look over what is the Kidron Valley to see Jerusalem past that valley and then just to think about what Jesus went through in that moment, in that evening, as he wrestled in agony in his soul. See, for me, the, the, the victory that happened, the resurrection that followed after Jesus died was inevitable because he was perfect. Death couldn't hold him. There, there was no accusation of sin that could, that could cause him to be pronounced guilty and separated from God. It was inevitable that he would rise from the dead victorious and ascend to the right hand of the Father. For me, as I sat there, um, in the Mount of Olives, at the base of it, at the foot of it, in what we think was the Garden of Gethsemane, it was to recognize that the battle, the victory, was won right there. As Jesus said yes to the Father, willingly 
to lay his life down so that you and I could be set free. Jesus' necessary substitution sets us free. Jesus' necessary final substitution sets us free. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. We read these words in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. It says, talks about if, if, if he had been a high priest like the other priest or a priest like the other priest, he would have to suffer repeatedly. But it says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, Jesus once and for all took care of the sin problem so that those who are found in Christ, those who say yes to God, yes to his son Jesus, put their faith and trust in him. When they're found in him, their sin past, their sin present, their sin future has been dealt with so that when Jesus comes again, which he's going to, it, it's not for, they're not looking, you know, Jesus is not looking to judge them and they're not looking to be judged. They get to look forward to what, what is the salvation going to look like from there going forward? What's it going to be like to enjoy the riches of God's grace for the rest of eternity? It's final. It's been done. It's complete. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We've been set free. It's a present possession. And, there, and there's, you know, is it that redemption, there's going to be more, to, more involved to it to come. But you can know right now that your trespasses, your sins have been dealt with. They are forgiven. And you can live free, free from condemnation, free from the accusations sometimes that you bring on yourself in your head, free from the accusations that the enemy of our soul is so good at. But you can live free. Free from those things. It's been done. You know, today sometimes people will post a picture or a friend will post picture or information. And, and you know, that was done a couple of years ago. And, and now several years later, you, you're ashamed of, of what's been posted because you've changed. Your, your worldview's changed. But you can't go back into cyberspace and, and wipe that away. It's, it's floating out there. And sometimes people do a search and, the, and they'll find that about you. And, and you go, well, that's not me anymore. But it's there. And, it's, and for some people, it's devastating stating some of the stuff they've done in their past. But if we were to Google, you know, Tim's sins, you'd find nothing. My, my, my slate's been washed clean. It's been dealt with. It's final. It's complete. And I'm free. And some of you need to hear that this morning. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's dealt with your sins. He's purchased your redemption. You are free. Imagine a friend pays for your dinner and then afterwards, you know, he leaves early and afterwards you go to pay for it. Like, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Or you lie awake at night wondering, how am I going to pay for that meal? No, it's been paid for. It's final. It's complete. It's done. 
once and for all. The substitution was necessary, it was final. Lastly, let me say it was transforming. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about this, that there has been a a, a new covenant. As I pick it up in verse 15, it says, um, actually, let me start in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. So after his sacrifice and his resurrection, he makes a covenant with us, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. How often? No more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's complete and it's done. And this is so final, but it's also transformational because this blood of Jesus that was shed for us, that took care of our sin, also inaugurated a new way of relating to God, a new covenant where God, whereby God has given us a new heart with a new disposition to obey God. His laws are written on our hearts and he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can now live not only freed from the penalty of sin, but we can begin to live victorious over the power of sin. And in a relationship with God where we have free access to him to walk into his presence at any time we want and commune with him as a father does with his children. That's why there's adoption. That's why we can stand holy and blameless in his sight. The blood of Jesus that has redeemed us has transformed us so that we can live in a new and living way. And so when you see in the, in the book of Acts, when you see the apostles proclaiming what we call the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, you will see it almost without exception in every occasion they talk about the forgiveness of sins. Not because it's the end of all things, but it's the problem that has to be taken care of, which then becomes the gateway to a new life with God through Jesus Christ where his laws are written on our hearts and his spirit is working in us to do those things which God, pleases God. We have a new capability, a new power, and we need to know this. We need to know this. You see, because in our past, maybe we lived as slaves to sin and its disposition, and you know you, you made such a mess in your relationships with other people And you were separate from God, but now you have free access to him and and you have been given a power to begin to live in his ways. But you've you've lived the former way so long that it's hard for you to believe that you are truly, really free. But this is what God wants you to know. You can live in a different way because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ through his necessary, final transforming substitution. They say if, um, if you take a baby elephant and it's in captivity and you put a chain around its leg and you put it to a, a stake in the ground and it grows up with that chain around its foot, that even though when the, that baby elephant grows up to be a big elephant, that in one swing of his leg could rip that stake out of the ground and it could run to its freedom. It doesn't know that it's free. 
and it won't do it. We need to know that we are free and to live in a way where nothing holds us back. Not the, not the past, not the present, not the future of our failures and our fallenness, but that we've been redeemed, we've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we can live lives that are just grateful to God. We can live lives of worship. How do we use our freedom, Paul says elsewhere? Do we use it then to sin again, to, to hurt one another again, to do things that, that mess up our relationship with God? No, he says. We, we, we lavishly, we worship God. We're grateful. And by love, we serve one another. And then, of course, one of the hardest things that it is for us to do, as we have been forgiven, we also forgive one another. This is the new and living way that Jesus has purchased for us. Oswald Chambers also said that once you realize the, the price, the cost of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he says, it's like you're held like a vice and all you can do is be constrained by the love of God to love him and to love others.